Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of the Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am so tired. <laughs> I'm a little tired, too, but I'm glad to be talking about movies with my friends. Uh, everyone is tired. That is the constant state of things. First up in controversies and controversies, Barack Obama has released his list of best movies and TV shows of 2020. Um, it is the sort of tastefully curated list of middle brow favorites that haters love to suggest is shaped with the help of consultants, while his fanboys insist is in totally organic. Uh, on the movie side, Obama picks socially conscious fare like Lover's Rock, Crip Camp, uh, which his production company produced, it should be noted, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, about which we'll have more to say in a bit, alongside critical darlings like the Brazilian horror western Bacarau, and I, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Bacarau, possibly. Uh, and Nomadland, as well as more politically minded fare like Boys State and Mank. His television choices read like a lineup of Twitter faves from The Queen's Gambit to Better Call Saul to Debs to The Good Place, uh, with arguably his sauciest pick of the year in this list, The Boys, Amazon's naughty deconstruction of superhero storytelling. As with most things, I am more interested in the meta discourse surrounding Obama's picks than the picks themselves. Uh, his de detractors, as I suggested, say that, you know, this is all the work of focus testing and consultants and, you know, his kids and his wife and whatever, while uh, his detractors detractors say that this is actually a subtle form of racist, uh, racism, insisting that there's nothing at all weird about questioning the sincerity of a politician's stated preferences. Peter... I'd like to make a joke about the president's pedestrian middle brow tastes, except for the fact that I love devs too and let him go, which Obama picked will probably wind up on my year end list as well. How much overlap do you think you'll have with former president Obama? I mean, devs might be my favorite thing that I watched this year on a screen of any kind, which admittedly includes laptop screens, OLEDs and like three trips to a movie theater to see Harrison Ford talk to an animated dog. I think like all three movies I saw in March in January and February were Harrison Ford talking to an animated dog. That's all I can remember. No, um, like it's this is an interesting list, both because of sort of the political positioning, but also because of what it sort of says about here is the ex president of the United States. This is a guy who if anyone has opportunity in this world, right, who he's got like a, a $60 million with deal uh, for his books and like with Netflix and like, I, I mean, like he's just been showered with money and attention and all of this stuff. He is widely loved. I find him, I thought he was not a great president, but I find him incredibly personally appealing um, and, and always kind of have. Uh, and he is spending 2020 clearly watching a ton of television. I think quite a bit more than me. I have not seen a bunch of these things. Um, I'm Many of them are things that I want to see. Somehow or another, he already saw Soul. I guess that's just presidential privilege. Is he on like critics lists? Are studios uh, yeah, just I mean, sending him stuff early and in advance? Uh, he, I mean, he, he, well, there's a 100% chance he's getting screeners because this happened last year too. There were there were things on his list that yeah, were I mean, not. I, I, I know Alyssa may know more about this than, than, than us, but uh, he, he reportedly was one of an extremely small number of people who got early uh, Game of Thrones screeners when he was in the White House. Yeah, I mean, I think that Barack Obama is a sort of sufficiently adored cultural figure that if, you know, he calls up Bob Iger and is like, hi, I just really want to watch Soul on Date Night with Michelle, like he gets Soul, right? I um, 
I, I don't think there's a lot of mystery there. Like I think Barack Obama wants stuff. Barack Obama gets stuff and that's fine. You know, um, is it, that's, that's the elitism talking. I can't stand it. The, the people demand to have soul access the same time as the former president. So it's true. Barack Obama is destroying our efforts to have common cultural experiences clearly. And, and Tenet is not in his list. So he hates movie theaters. That's true. I, you know, I hadn't even done that part of the Kremlinology. The lack of Tenet suggests a real disrespect for the state of movie theaters. Why does he want all of those ushers and concession stand workers to be out of jobs? Peter. I mean, I think he was just waiting to see it the way Nolan intended, which is on 4k Blu-ray on his phone <laughs> in portrait mode on an uh, OLED with an Atmos surround sound system in his basement, like a real American. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I, again, I, I find the whole the whole conversation surrounding this I find to be like kind of amusing uh, in a weird way, like because on the one hand, it is a list that is absolutely uh, It feels like it was designed to earn plaudits from critics on Twitter who could be like, look at look at how good Barack Obama is at watching movies. Um, on the other hand, I have no reason to doubt that he watched these movies and enjoyed them. I like I don't I don't like to I don't like to second guess uh, people's tastes. It's not you know, people like what they like, whatever. It's fine. Um, uh, but, but like, again, on the third hand, the like I, I, I keep going back and forth on this in my head because like I think it's insane again, there, there is this, there's this kind of persistent suggestion that questioning his picks is like a form of subtle racism that like, cause he's the, the, how could this black guy possibly like these good movies, blah, blah, which it strikes me as insane. I mean, I think people are critiquing it as a political object, not as anything else. I, I think mean, the problem think is, I think the problem is that people are critiquing what is objectively a good list. And what's interesting about Barack Obama, what the reason that I find him, like I said, quite personally appealing is that he thinks uh, and and engages with the world like a writer. Now, again, I didn't think that translated into being a particularly great president. Obviously, there's a relative comparison here that we've been looking at for the last four years. There's it gets complicated. Um, but he is he is first and foremost a writer. He's a guy who engages with the world in the way that writers do. And that is one of the reasons that journalists really liked him is because for for the first time in uh, certainly in my lifetime, but maybe, you know, in generations, we had somebody who was an introspective literary writer type in the White House, somebody who wrote his own books. His uh, his his new book reportedly was delayed just because he was writing it himself, which is pretty rare for an ex-president. And he, also, he just he like, took said, a long time to write it. He also said a bunch of off the record, really, like he reportedly complained to friends that um, it was really unfair that he was getting a hard time for delivering his manuscript late while his wife's book was becoming this huge bestseller. Cause like I'm writing it myself and she's working with someone, um, which oh. is also the most sort of writerly thing ever. <laughs> um, uh, marriages of writers. Yeah. I mean, I would say I fully believe that this list is real and is the you know product of Barack Obama's actual taste in part because it is absolutely the list of someone who would as he puts in his own memoir attempt to seduce a air quotes ethereal bisexual unquote right like it's exactly the kind of sort of cool dude list um that i mean someone who and Obama has never been like unclear about who he is or that he's a in fact you know, kind of, he has said let me be clear a lot of times <laughs> And he's written about yeah. all of this many, many right. times. But he's someone 
who, you know, I mean, he spends a lot of time in his own head. He um, is a voracious consumer and he has sort of wide ranging and eclectic tastes that are a product and part of his wide ranging and eclectic upbringing. Um, and so it's funny to me that people would attempt to describe this as focus groups grouped when it's both so clearly a product of who he is and is idiosyncratic in some interesting ways, right? Like, I mean, the you know, The Good Place is, you know, a critical darling, but it's exactly the kind of show that, like, someone who, you know, is very introspective and concerned about sort of goodness in the world would be into. Like, you know, Devs is in some way, I mean, it's, you know, a show that all three of us really loved, I think. Um, like you, Peter, I think it may be my favorite thing that I watched this year, or at least one of the things that I my brain has returned to most often. And that show has actually got kind of mixed reviews in some ways, as um, I think, you know, a lot of folks found it a little sort of turgid and weird and thinky. Um, and it's one of the things which on it, here... Well, it's it's weird and thinky, but that's what's great about it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's weird and thinky in Nick Offerman's voice. For yeah. six or eight hours, and it's just like I could just listen to that for. Forever. There's also there's also a critical undercurrent uh, of opposition to Alex Garland, which I do not understand and yeah. like vaguely resent. Uh, but yeah, no, but I like but Debs is kind of the perfect example of something that again I would be like, this is this is middle brow pap questioning the nature of existence, but except that I'm a total sucker for that sort of thing. Yeah, um, I like it's it's it is probably up there on my favorites list. All right, De so Debs uh, De De is the ultimate like smart thinky parent show right like it's you know for all of us who adore our children and like care about the state of the universe and like are two in our own heads and just want to listen to nick offerman like talk about like fate and data a lot like and that's you know this is obviously authentic because barack obama is like one of five people for whom devs was made <laughs> i mean it does seem like looking at this list that in some ways Barack Obama somewhat weirdly is like the modal HBO viewer, right? <laughs> like he is like, if you think of the prestige shows that HBO, especially in the last couple of years has just been releasing, you know, they basically have their Sunday night uh, uh, time slot where you have, um, you know, everything uh, from uh, the detective show that like, I'm thinking of like the last three shows, you have The Undoing, you have um, uh, Lovecraft Mason. Country and Perry Mason are the last uh, the la three of the last shows that have occupied that slot. And yes, not all of them made Obama's list, but all None of them, them are, are built yeah. as shows targeting this kind of viewer, right? Like the kind of the the, the comfortable uh Chicago row home owner who the reads a lot. The pandering choice here is actually the Queen's Gambit, I think. Uh, but I, I really loved the Queen's Gambit a lot. And I, sure. I think it's just objectively great and does cinematic stuff with the television format that is really quite rare. Did the two of you watch I May Destroy You? Did not. It's up, no. it's up there with me for devs. It's like containing a couple of sort of scenes and images that my brain just keeps coming back to over and over. It's really, really good. Um, highly recommended. Uh, maybe um, actually I want to take back my he's the modal HBO viewer. You know what he is? He's the modal at across the movie aisle listener, right? Like he's Barack, person, Barack Obama, he's come on across the movie aisle. Yes, he should be an, a, a guest on this show, right? He should be he, our fourth he chair. Really has interesting, relevant opinions we could have, like a sure. like a, a, a center lefty who ha wants to talk with people who he disagrees with, right? He's he's 
interested in this stuff. He's uh, also interested in politics, has some experience with show. political writing. Like, it's it's <laughs> exactly the kind of, right? Like you want to, you, you want to be frustrated be with it, but like, no, like, you just look at this and it's like, actually, this is a good list by, by an interesting person who is, who is genuinely deserves to be like the kind of public figure he is and to occupy the, the place in the public imagination that he does, uh, whether or not I agreed with a lot of what he did as president. Let's be honest. If, if Barack Obama was on this show, it would not really be across the movie aisle so much as Barack Obama talks for like two hours. <laughs> and we all just kind of listen and say, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. No, I'd interrupt yeah, that, him, funny. That is, that is the total, that is, that is the, uh, that is the sort of podcast guest I would imagine him to be. I don't listen to other podcasts, so I haven't listened to anything else he's been on. I wanted to put this night. I imagine. I would say that the the biggest surprise uh, from my POV was let him go being on there. Yeah, I, I which was like again a movie I liked a, a, a very a very great deal, but like All I was kind of like. That's that's that. And, and it's like getting decent reviews, but not not great reviews. Uh, and it, it was there it is. And I, I was. A, I was I was a little disappointed that the hunt was not on there, though. That should have been, you know, number one on Barack Obama's list. Uh, all right. So what do we think is is the is Barack Obama's best of list a controversy or a non-troversy? Uh, and, and kind of secondarily is the discussion around is the suggestion that he does not write his own uh, a list, a controversy or non-troversy. Alyssa, go. Uh, the the list itself is hugely non-controversial. The discussion of whether or not he uh, writes his own list is too stupid to be even considered a controversy. I think Peter. it's totally a controversy how good this list is and how much I agree with it. And the other thing? Yeah, it's nothing. I don't even... I, don't I agree with Melissa, I guess. Uh, I would say that this list is very, very controversial, again, for, for ignoring Tenet. Um, the fact that the fact that Barack Obama does not care if this nation's movie theaters succeed or fail uh, and that he has abandoned Christopher Nolan, uh, you know, I thought I thought he loved the middle brow stuff. But here here he is. No, Christopher well, Nolan. And his, Very first, sad. his first date with his wife was to a movie. And the story of that first date has been made into a movie, both shown theatrically. Barack Obama saved movie theaters for Michelle. Yeah, why does why would he why would he abandon us? Why would he abandon us? All right, uh, that's a good segment. Um, if you enjoyed that segment and this show, and who doesn't, it's pretty great. Uh, Barack Obama, uh, make sure to head over to atma.tothebulwark.com, where we will have a special bonus members only episode about the most shocking story of the year: a journalist who fell in love with the most hated man in America, Martin Shkreli or whatever, however you pronounce his last name. Uh, and now on to the main event. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is Netflix's latest buzzy release. It's Chadwick Boseman's final film, right? This is his actual final released film. This is the last we will see of poor Chadwick Boseman. Uh, he, it was completed a bit before he died of colon cancer. Uh, it is an adaptation of August Wilson's play of the same name. A fact I learned while Googling it because I thought to myself, you know what, this feels a lot like Fences. Remember Fences? Denzel Washington's Fences? Uh, yep. Same guy. Same writer. Um, and, and, and the reason I felt this way is because it feels very much like a filmed play. Set during one hot day in the Chicago summer as Ma Rainey, played by Viola Davis, gets together with her band to put together a sure-to-be-hit record for a pair of white record producers. The whole 
thing has a constrained and almost slightly claustrophobic vibe to it. Uh, most of the action takes place in two rooms. There's a basement room where the band can practice, and the, the and then there's the recording studio itself, where Ma Rainey is queen of all she surveys. There are monologues upon monologues, and if the reason you go to the movies is to be transported away by an intense bit of acting or three, then Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is going to give you much to love. Um, uh, my favorite performance in this was actually Coleman Domingo's turn as band leader Cutler. Uh, he's the sort of guy who's willing to go with the flow up to a point and then woe be to those who cross that point. If the reason you go to the movies is for story and plot, however, I think you're going to be a little bit disappointed here. It's it's a little bit slight in that regard. It is a character study at heart uh, that has much to say about the nature of art and commerce and who holds power over whom at different points in the process. And of course, the way that race plays into all of this. Alyssa, you are a big fan of August Wilson. Please educate us about this play's place in his body of work and the American theater in general and what you made of this uh adaptation of it for the the small screen sure i was really lucky to um grow up in the boston area when uh, wilson was working with the huntington theater on an adaptation of this group of 10 plays um that's known alternately as the pittsburgh cycle or the century cycle um all of them except for ma rainey's black bottom are set in pittsburgh where Wilson himself grew up, the child of uh, a black cleaning woman and a white man who basically abandoned the family. Um, and he you know, grew up in having these really personal intimate experiences with uh, racial discrimination and even racial violence in the predominantly white neighborhoods where he grew up. Um, and you know, was very has, he's a very interesting figure, was influenced by um, Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, the black arts movie movement. Um, you know, he's talked about being as influenced by, uh, you know, the writer Borges as by Amiri Baraka, who's a radical black writer. Um, and, you know, I I really love Wilson's work. Um, I've seen, I saw a lot of the productions that um, he was collaborating with at the Huntington. Um, and his work, I think, informs a lot of what I like in, what I like in art in general. Um I think one of the best ways if you haven't read or seen Wilson's work performed is that, you know, he, his work is sort of the epitome of the idea that black lives matter. Uh, and I say that not in sort of a political sloganizing kind of way, it, but in that he is very interested in the lives of ordinary black Americans. And he is interested in the specific language and circumstances of ordinary black Americans and treats his characters lives even though his characters may be, you know, you know, backup musicians in a band or garbage men or guys who drive jitneys, sort of unlicensed taxis, as if they are as monumental and interesting as any sort of Greek epic without um, sort of being pretentious or, you know, elevating them in a way that their lives can't actually bear. And so, you know, his work is always about ordinary people. Um, you know, Ma Rainey is... Um, based on is you know a real historical figure, um, an important blues woman, but you know the play is at least as interested um, in the musicians who tour behind her, who largely are not in, you know interested in becoming famous. You know, fences is about you know a, it's about the life of a garbage man, um, and you know this play in particular is interesting to see adapted this year because it captures one of the big political debates of 2020. And obviously it's not made during 2020. You can't anticipate this. But, you know, the argument between 
Cutler and Levy, the um, the musician played by Chadwick Boseman, who sort of has ambitions of striking out on his own. And to a certain extent between Levy and Ma Rainey is um, sort of how about how black people approach white people and approach um, sort of the world with integrity and an eye towards their own success. And, you know, Levy um, believes that the way that he's going to get ahead is by sort of being outwardly accommodationist um, as a way to, you know, sort of advance his own goals in his career. And Ma, by contrast, is sort of studiedly impossible, right? I mean, she gives every single person, she gives every single white character in the movie an incredibly hard time because she knows that it's the only way to sort of raise her value and get what she wants every step of the way. She can only give a little bit um, if she's going to extract each thing she wants sort of piece by piece. And so without being sort of pedantic or exhausting, it's a really kind of clarifying movie to have come along at the end of a year that was defined in addition, you know, not just by a pandemic, but by a debate over whether sort of radical or moderate politics is the best way to advance black equality in the United States. Um, after a year, you know, it's a play that's also about um, sort of the white business side of black music. Um, you know, it ends with this scene of a white band playing songs that were written by a black man who never got the chance to perform them. And so, um, you know, I think Wilson is, you know, there's a reason the plays are called the century cycle. They're about a century of American life um, as defined by the experience of black Americans. If you want to think about the arc of that century, one of the best things to do is read or see those plays. Um, one of my personal favorites is uh, Jitney, which is an earlier work that he revised later. Um, but that has the same kind of, you know, it's a small tight setting. It's like a, you know, it's a Jitney Depot. It's where the taxi drivers gather when they're off hours or waiting for calls. Um, and it's just a lot of people sitting around talking and debating. Um, but it just shows, you know, Wilson shows enormous trust in ordinary people to cut to the heart of the matter. Um, and I think this adaptation um, does that really beautifully. I, uh, you know, it's it's so it's funny you mentioned something there about it's it's about people sitting around and debating and talking, and that is that is very much what Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is about. Uh, Peter, do, you, do as as a as a cinema lover and as somebody who very much likes the the tools and uh, methods of cinema to tell a story, do you think that this sort of play is well suited for? Uh, cinematic adaptation. I mean, again, it, it just kind of feels very much like a filmed play. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is, it is, a, I would say, I mean, look, I think it is a slightly slighter form of filmmaking. So it's certainly very theatrical and, and stylized in a very theatrical way. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I do think that it's also quite cinematic, but, but maybe I want to answer your question a little bit differently by combining your question with something that Alyssa said and something else I was thinking about, which is that Alyssa said that, that Wilson's plays are about people trying to live with integrity. And you're wondering whether something so overtly theatrical can also be cinematic or if it, if that doesn't sort of kind of the, a part of your question is, is asking whether that fails to live up to what cinema should be. And watching this movie and this will, like, probably someone will be annoyed that I'm going to say this, but watching this movie, uh, actually, I, I just sort of couldn't stop thinking about early Quentin Tarantino and Reservoir Dogs in particular, which is 
a, a movie about a quartet of guys who are like squabbling with each other, arguing, right? Like it's very theatrical, um, you know, in, in its presentation and it's just sort of a, a one location essentialism, right? And it kind of develops and it's just about these characters and how and the power struggle between them and the different ways of being a criminal. And then you move on to Tarantino's next film and, and you've got Pulp Fiction. Uh, and it is it is a movie about people trying to figure out how to live with integrity. And it's a movie that, yes, is ha uh, much more open than Reservoir Dogs or than Ma Rainey, but stops and pauses on these monologues that are about, that are first of all, just sort of about the beauty of spoken language. And second of all, about people taking a moment in time to express their sort of core ideas about life by telling a story. And that's something that Tarantino does a huge amount is he just stops scenes and lets them play out so that they can tell a story about something that they remember from one time. And that story has a deeper meaning, right? And often also Tarantino, and he's gotten in trouble for this in some ways, Tarantino's movies are heavily about racial dynamics and power dynamics and codes of honor and the complex ways that they sort of mix and match with each other. And I was thinking about this and I actually just like Googled it. And there's a great interview with Samuel L. Jackson uh, in the Los Angeles Times in 1994, in which Jackson talks about the similarities between uh, between August Wilson and Quentin oh, wow. Quint Tarantino and how much he loves uh, Wilson's monologues and how thrilled he was when, as a movie actor, he doesn't get to do monologues very often, especially you know, early in his career, when he got to do those big set piece monologues in Pulp Fiction and he treated them like he sort of understood them as kind of extensions of the August Wilson way of 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 uh, you know of, of treating characters and of of talking about the world. And so, to answer your question, Sonny, I think I think there's something incredibly cinematic about that. And does he develop it as you know sort of into or is this particular film developed in in the kind of cinematic way that Tarantino has developed over the years? No, but it it comes from a similar impulse that I think is is humane and literate um, and is interested. Uh, this particular movie version is not like, it doesn't blow you know, really expand the, the play out in terms of like giving us a ton of new locations or sort of trying to make it travel around the city or anything like that. But it's, it's very visual, um, right? It's just gorgeously shot and cinema doesn't just have to be about uh, fancy editing and, you know, uh, and, and, and amazing cinematography it is also about language and about people and about how they relate to each other. And that's Quentin Tarantino. That's August Wilson. That's Ma Rainey. And all of them are quite theatrical, but also quite cinematic all at the same time. And to close, and when, can I, if I can just close yeah, the yeah. loop, you know, this is directed by George Wolfe, who won a Tony for directing the original production of Angels in America, which is in certain ways about as cinematic as you can get on yeah. Broadway, right? Like it's a play that involved that like where the first act ends with like an angel crashing through the ceiling of someone's apartment, um, which they did like fairly literally in that production. Um, so there is yeah. like a fun sort of <laughs> closed loop here. If you're yeah, I think I, I mean, I, you know, just maybe to sort of make a, one more connection. The other, the other thing that this made me think of uh, is Glengarry Glenn Ross, uh, which is obviously a, a, the, the movie version is adapted from Mamet's play uh, from David Mamet's play. And it's quite stagey in, in the movie version, yeah. right? Like there's well, no, yeah. nice looking shots and you have some exteriors with, the, you know, where trains roll by in the background, but it's really quite, enclosed so. yeah. um, and I love that movie and I think I might like it a little better than Ma Rainey but like I like them I, I think the appeal there it, 
for both Glengarry uh, and for Ma Rainey is very similar. And to say that they're not cinematic, they're not cinematic in the way that sort of things that are designed for screen first often are, but they're cinematic in a different way. And, and, and I think it's a mistake to say, oh, this is just sort of theatrical and stagey and therefore it sort of shouldn't be in this format or something. Yeah, I mean, the 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 counter uh, point I would like to make here, and this is this is where I think the film is at its best and where it works best as film is the use of close up. I mean, the 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 ability to focus on especially Viola Davis, Davis's face, I, I think, um, but also uh, um, uh, Chadwick Boseman's uh, the, the ability to kind of watch their eyes and really get in into their their personal space and see what the 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 toll that their life you know their life experiences have taken upon their characters is is like pretty is pretty amazing and pretty dramatic again if you if you if you go to movies to watch people act this is a great great movie uh, to watch acting and i mean just just again just watch viola davis's eyes and like the kind of heavy-lidded nature of everything she does she, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the way they describe Pauly in Goodfellas, you know, he he didn't move. He didn't have to move for anyone, um, you know, for a guy who for a guy who ran the whole town. You know, he he talked to three people all day and he didn't he didn't move quick for any of them. And that's kind of what Ma Rainey reminds me of here, almost like a mob boss. Like she has all the power. She can she can make this thing happen or not happen. And they're all relying on her. And she uses that to her advantage. Um, and it's again, it's 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 really instructive just to watch the way Viola Davis's eyes work in this movie. It's some it's it's really it's it's a it is a masterclass in acting. Uh, Alyssa, what was your favorite performance in the film? Um, I mean, I think Davis is really amazing. I wanted to just highlight this one scene because you were talking about sort of her eyes and you know the way the movie focuses on her face. And there's this scene towards the end of the movie where she's brought along this nephew who clearly has no business being in a recording studio, but has kind of thrown him this bit part that it's hard for him to pull off. And then she insists he gets paid fairly at the end of the session. And she has to throw this like volcanic temper tantrum to do it. Um, but after she wins the argument, her white manager leaves. Um, you see the movie just the camera just stays with her as she sort of sits back in her chair and you see what that tantrum has cost her. Like her, you know, the lines of her mouth relax a little bit, but you can also see her start to breathe faster because she's feeling the sort of adrenaline rush of having pitched this fit that her manager is reading as very genuine, but the, that the scene makes clear is very obviously theatrical. Um, it's hard to pick a great performance in this. I was glad that you singled out Coleman Domingo, who is also an incredible um, theater veteran. Um, I don't, I don't assume either of you are familiar with um, this show called Passing Strange, uh, where he plays like four different parts um, and is incredible in all of them. Um, highly recommended um, by this musician, Stu. It's autobiographical um, about, in some ways, some of the same themes um, as this. Um, I mean, I think Chadwick Boseman is getting, is obviously and fairly going to get an enormous amount of attention for this role. And as horrible as it is that he's dead, I'm glad that sort of this and not Black Panther is going to be sort of the last credit on his list because it's, I mean, it's interesting seeing him play a character who is, you know, presents as very sure of himself, but is damaged and weak in a lot of ways. Um, and to see him play that sort of edge of instability instead of the, 
you know, the Thurgood Marshalls and the Jackie Robinsons and the T'Challas that he played for so much of his career. It's, I am glad that that final performance will get, you know, the attention it deserves because it shows what he could have done um, if, you know, in a career that wasn't eaten up by superhero movies and biopics. Um, but I do think, I think Viola Davis is probably my favorite performance in this movie just because like, she is just, she's insane in this. She's so good, right? I mean, <laughs> and she doesn't even have a ton of dialogue. Um, but she just, and it's, yeah, I mean, there are so many things that got me about this movie. I mean, we're, you know, we talked about it as an acting showcase, but it's also an amazingly lit movie. Um, cons- especially considering that um, a sort of long standing complaint has been that directors do not, bother to light black actors correctly and here you're where you have a bunch of actors all with slightly varying skin tones um some of them in like a subterranean room uh, rainy isn't you know largely shot in sunny rooms but the re- you know the session musicians are all sort of in the basement and they all just look fantastic all of the time right i mean there's just such care taken to make them all look good um and everyone in it is terrific there's like, a great I, kind of golden haze to the to the the whole production i mean not it's not hay, it's not exactly haze it's i mean you know, it's almost like a golden sheen right um and it's not just that they're lit really well it's that the whole production design has been built or it just has this sort of amazing color scheme to it uh that works with the clothes that are that have been chosen right that allows uh that allows black skin tones to pop um right yeah. and to look and this is a thing that like we don't talk about it very often because it's very common and because also it's a sort of weird thing. Like it's not something that you notice in the way that's like, it stands out. Uh, but like a production design is built to make performers look good in movies, right? It is, it is done with thought as to, Oh, we've got a, an actor who looked or actress who looks like this. Um, but as you said, that's much less common when, you know, for, for black actors who are often, you know, sort of the, small uh, there are fewer of them in films uh you know in in many films when they're in the cast um and so when you see a a film that is mostly black black actors where it has been clearly you know just given a ton of thought uh it's it's really interesting uh my my favorite performance i think actually i mean look bozeman and davis are incredible i should really like michael potts who is the bassist? Who has been, you know, played Brother Mizzou in The Wire, uh, was in Oz, has was in t- uh, True Detective, um, and it just is one of these guys who you've been watching on screen, or I've been watching on screen for fifteen or twenty years in mostly smallish supporting parts, but is always such a sturdy and reliable presence, and and brings something to it that's not just like okay that worked fine, but like he's noticeable without taking over a scene unnecessarily right he's just an an absolutely incredible supporting player and the kind who doesn't get attention when he's understandably doesn't get attention when he's you know uh in a movie with viola davis and, and chadwick boseman chadwick boseman's last role that sort of thing but he's the kind of actor who i really like to see and who i would like to see get a bigger showcase at some point um because he deserves it all right. So, what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? Oh, thumbs up. Yeah. Thumbs up. 
Thumbs up. That is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode at Bulwark Plus. And make sure to tell your friends. A good recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. You don't want us to die, do you? Uh, If you didn't love today's episode, complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed once again. See you guys next week.